0: Welcome everyone. Um, if you are here for the first time, um, we do this every single service, so it's it's very exciting, but it also leads to a very long service, but we're, we're really happy to do it. Um, but welcome, my name is Kyle. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I apologize. I hope you have the pleasure later, but um, I'll be hanging around and I'll, I'll love to meet you if it's your first time here. Um, and yeah, I guess it's my, my joy to be with you this morning um, and I get the the privilege uh, to share with you from Scripture as we are kicking off our our Luke series, which started last week. Uh, And today I'm going to be speaking from uh, Luke chapters 6 to 8. I won't be covering everything that happens in those chapters because there's a whole lot that happens. But uh, I will be sort of touching on some, um, some key sections uh, and the scriptures will be up on, on the screen. But yeah, I'm just trying to like uh, dig into some of the richness that occurs in these uh, chapters from 6 to 8 and bring out some, some core truths uh, about Jesus. Um, last week, Pastor Paul uh, started the series off. And if you, haven't, uh, if you weren't able to listen to the message or, or be here to watch the message, um, I do, really do encourage you to go back and check that out on a yeah, podcast or YouTube, or um, just come and ask Paul to come to your house and preach it for you if you want. Um, he's happy to do that. Um, but yeah, please do make sure you go and check that one out, because it, it is a, a really great message. Um, and during that message, Pastor Paul also went over some of the background into to Luke, into actually who Luke is and the Gospel of Luke. So I won't be covering all of that uh, this morning, Um, During his sermon last week as well, Pastor Paul mentioned, I can't remember the context, but he he mentioned something about like stinky food, um, about people like opening stinky food in our, our meeting rooms, which is really just rude. Um, if you want to put it that way. But uh, our good friend Danny, who's, on, who's wheeling around um, on the, the piano every now and again, uh, he brought some cuttlefish back from Malaysia for me. But, well, not for me. He brought back for me to give to my father-in-law because I want to stay in the good books of my father-in-law. Um, and so I got some packets of cuttlefish and then I took it to my sister-in-law's house last weekend where we were all meeting together for a weekend in Geelong. And it turns out that as much as I want to be in the good books of my father-in-law, it is even worse to be in the bad books of my sister-in-law when we opened up the cuttlefish in her house, and so yeah, now I'm in a hard place. But stinky food, it's great. But uh, look, um, I don't really do this type of stuff because I'm not that type of person. But uh, yeah, in in prayer this morning, I was just uh, uh, Ron was um, asking us to you know, what is God saying to you right now? Um, and I was just thinking of this picture of, uh, like, kids' parties. You know how sometimes you go to parties and they've got, like, helium balloons sitting on a table and there'll be, like, a, a sand weight or whatever, some sort of weight holding the balloons in the middle of the table. And then you're sitting around the table and you're trying to talk to each other and there's these gaudy, uh, reflective balloons right in the centre of the table as you're trying to, trying to talk to each other. There's this, this thing that just sort of sits between you and the person that you're having conversation with. And I was, uh, yeah, as Ron was sort of saying, hey, like, what is, what is God wanting to say to you, you right now. Uh, I got this picture of, of that, of this idea of this. Sometimes God wants to speak to us and we're sitting at this table with him and we've got this stuff that we allow to just sort of sit there and float in between him and us that we have every ability to sort of just reach across and, and cut the strings of and let that sort of barrier float away. And then um, Pastor Medin and the team there singing you know, that, uh, oh Lord, you beautiful song. Um, Keith Green song, your, your face is all I see. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, like as we as we dig into this message, if there's just stuff that is sitting between you and and seeing Jesus and, and hearing God's voice and being ministered to by the Holy Spirit, like just reach across and, and cut the strings and let that stuff sort of float away so that you can actually have a, a face-to-face conversation with God, that you can see him clearly, see his face properly and, and hear from him and be ministered to by him this morning. So just pushing that boat out there, and if you want to jump on board, please, by all means. But um, this morning I, I, I get to share with you from the Gospel of Luke, and I, I enjoy the Gospel of Luke because I think it gives us a real insight to care about. And so I'm going to read those verses for you um, Luke chapter 6, 1 to 5, and it says this One day as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off some heads of grain, rubbed the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. And some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied, haven't you read the scripture? What David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So let me sort of set the scene that pops into my head when I read this passage. Um, I'm sure we've all seen Gladiator... Um, and there's this scene, this sort of like dream sequence scene in the movie where uh, like Marcus Aurelius is walking through these these fields of wheat and it's like this slow-mo, ethereal picture and his his hands are just sort of like gliding through, through the wheat in this part of the scene. And I, I see Jesus and his disciples just walking. Like it doesn't really say what they're up to, but they're just walking through these wheat fields for some reason. And their hands are just like gliding through the wheat and as they do, they sort of like, pick a few grains, and they're sort of just sitting there rubbing the grains in their hands, you know, removing the husks. I don't know what else you do with wheat. (laughs) Removing things, doing stuff with wheat, I don't know. And then they're just popping it in their mouth and eating it, I guess. Apparently you can do that. But they're just sort of, you know, just doing their thing, just pulling off grains of wheat, uh, heads of wheat, and just eating it. And then for some reason... The Pharisees are like watching them or whether someone sort of reported it back to the Pharisees. But somehow the Pharisees found out that Jesus and his disciples are, are up to this. And at the time, I think, you know, Jesus only had the, the four disciples. Um, and they, they see, the Pharisees, they see this up and coming teacher with his small band of raggedy followers breaking the law, which, ooh, of course, would undermine this teacher's standing because it's hard to be a teacher of high regard in the Jewish world, especially if you're not obeying the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs. So, ooh, this is a good in. You know, the Jewish teachers, they've devised this complex system of of rules, and it includes the 39 melkot, which I don't think I'm pronouncing properly, but it's these 39 categories of work and activities that you're forbidden to do on the Sabbath. So there's 39 categories, and within those categories, there's all these subcategories of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do um, in, on the Sabbath day. Like if, uh, if you knock a bowl of apples over it, you're allowed to put the apples back because that's where they were. But if an apple falls off a tree and then you take that apple back to your house, that's collecting an apple, so you can't do that. So there's all these sort of you know, little nuances to the rules. But... The idea of picking the grain and then crushing it and then putting it in your mouth and eating it breaks three different rules on the Sabbath, because you're collecting, you're reaping and you're threshing. So they've already broken a lot of rules by like, plucking off the grains of head. And then the, so the Pharisees, they, they call out Jesus for this, this small little act of disobedience to their religious laws that they have created. And in this small interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, we, we start to see this divide of values and priorities. I can see uh, Jesus, you know, sort of raising his eyebrows in amusement as the Pharisees have pulled him aside and they start berating him for what, what his disciples have done. And Jesus is standing there like, oh, oh, okay, oh. So this is what you have an issue with, oh, Wow, okay, so you have a problem with what, how I'm leading these four men right now. Oh, you're going to have a lot more problems later. Like, if this is, this is a bad thing for you, oh boy, I'm really sorry. It hurts my heart to tell you, but you're going to have a much bigger problem soon. Like, I can sort of see Jesus sitting there knowing what is to come as these Pharisees are berating him about his four little followers picking grains of wheat. And I just, I just like that, that this sort of sets up this passage of this tiny division of values and priorities. And in the previous chapters, in 4 and 5, we see Jesus start to do some of his teaching and start to do some miracles. But of chapter 6, his ministry really picks up. Uh, Jesus starts to change the game and, and things are just never the same again. Um, some people have referred to uh, the domain of, of Jesus as the upside-down kingdom. And as we dig in today, uh, you will see why Jesus had, has come to bring a different type of rule and, and reign. The people of the day thought they they knew what a king did, they knew what a kingdom looked like. They thought they knew what it meant to be under the reign of a, a ruler, both religious and political. They thought they understood. And after the Pharisees, oh, sorry, after the disciples pick and eat some grain on the Sabbath and are confronted by the Pharisees. The very next thing that Jesus does in that chapter is on another Sabbath day going and healing people. And I feel like this is my reading into it, is that Jesus is somewhat intentionally stirring the pot. But maybe that's because I want Jesus to be more like me, but I don't know. But you know, on a next Sabbath day he's going to the temple and he's doing something again. Verse six to eleven show that Jesus is going out of his way to heal a man while he was teaching in the synagogue. So Jesus was in the temple, in the religious space, and again, breaking the Sabbath once again for the sake of healing someone. And then check out how verse 11 describes uh, the people who have issues with Jesus. They're no longer just you know Pharisees and onlookers. They are now his enemies. So Jesus is starting to ruffle some feathers of people around him. And then the next thing that Jesus does is he he goes and seeks God's will, and then he decides to add to the number of his four followers. And now instead of four people, he has 12. He's tripled the number of his disciples. And then after that, in verses 17 to 19, more people start to follow Jesus and more people start to be healed. But then Jesus does something that really upsets the apple cart. Jesus starts to teach new, uh, I guess you could call them new rules, new rules. Um, but unlike the rules that the previous rulers and leaders have placed on them, Jesus starts to describe a, a new type of reign that he is ushering in. Uh, Luke 620 to 23 shares with us the Beatitudes, which are these. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh What blessings await when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. Then, uh, sorry, when that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that way. So, just wait. Is this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in not really a new kingdom in the same way all the other kingdoms act, but is this new kingdom starting to redefine, like what success even looks like? A kingdom that is more concerned with uh, is more concerned than just what is going around us, but actually what is happening inside us. A kingdom that builds people up who can rejoice in times of sorrow as opposed to removing them from the things that cause them sorrow. Uh, A kingdom who makes you feel blessed even though you are poor instead of just bestowing riches on your life. A kingdom where you can be full of joy even in the midst of persecution because we know that our reward awaits us in heaven because that seems pretty Backwards to me, if I was devising a kingdom, that is backwards to what I would make, and it was backwards to what was happening at the time. A kingdom that promises future reward, even in the absence of immediate comfort. Uh, Timothy Chapman writes, from the perspective of the world, there's absolutely nothing blessed about mourning, meekness, or mercy. The world asserts the opposite, in fact. Blessed are the powerful for they shall inherit everything. It operates according to values and principles we've come to expect and accept. So in highlighting the strange and unexpected values of his kingdom, Jesus challenges us repeatedly to realize his way is full of surprises. His kingdom doesn't look like all the kingdoms of the earth which we are so accustomed. Those who get ahead in Jesus' kingdom are not those with unlimited power or the strongest determination, or the, nor those with impressive resources or intolerance for mistakes. Instead, the people that get ahead in Jesus' kingdom are those who experience hardship and those who forgive. Woohoo. cool. But just when you think it can't get any stranger, in verses 26 to 30, sorry, 27 to 36, we read this completely bonkers this bananas new way of doing life in which Jesus tells us not just to tolerate our enemies but to actually love those who do not love us and in fact to sacrificially love those who hate us do good to your enemies he says well you would have to rightfully ask you know, quite often people come up with like proposals. Um, you know, people come to the church sometimes with proposals or you go to the council with a proposal and they'll start poking holes in your thing and say, well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? All right, good, do good to your enemies. Okay, do good to your enemies. Well, then how is your kingdom supposed to grow when your kingdom is giving ground to the enemy? That seems like it doesn't work. Or like, how are we supposed to defend ourselves from losing How are we supposed to acquire more space and resources when we have the well-being of our enemies in mind when we make our plans? That's like saying, hey, make sure that your business is really good for all the other businesses that you're in competition with. That's a good business model. It doesn't make sense. It's insanity. It's backwards. It's backwards if we value and prioritise The same things that everyone else values and prioritizes. Because Jesus is chuckling probably by now. and He's thinking back to when you had an issue with him picking grains of, you know, heads of grain. He's like, oh, you had a problem back then. I'm really flipping things around now. I just wait till I start showing love and kindness to the people that you hate. Just wait till I start showing love and kindness to the people that are persecuting you. Just wait till I start showing love and kindness to the people that have been putting our people down for generations. Then you're going to have a problem. And then Jesus follows this up by teaching about the tree and its fruit. And in verses 43 and 45, the key takeaway from this section is verse 45 when Jesus says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. So spend as much time as you want dealing with behavioral issues. But at the end of the day, if you are not dealing with the heart, then you are not dealing with the problem, you are dealing with a symptom. God's reign that Jesus is ushering in is different because it sees more than what is just on the outside God's reign is able to see through that and see what is in the inside and God's reign is coming for the core of our problems because God's reign is coming for our hearts. God's reign wants control to the very core of who you are because God knows that when he has your heart he has everything that comes out of it. You can compile all the rules, all the laws from all the countries and kingdoms that you want but none of them speak to the heart of a person. Because Jesus is different. Chapter 7 kicks straight into action again. And Jesus is interacting with some Jewish elders, as he probably should. You know, they're high respected in the community. But they were actually sent to him on behalf of a Roman officer. So an oppressing nation has sent uh, some Jewish elders to speak to Jesus. Um, because they're probably hoping, that the, the, the Roman officer is probably hoping that these Jewish elders and these Jewish leaders can probably like, uh, you know, uh, lean in on and speak to Jesus's maybe cultural obligations. Um, But Jesus doesn't really care about the fact that it's a Roman soldier that needs help. And Jesus actually starts to use the faith of the Roman officer as a talking point to the Jewish people. So Jesus is using the Romans to preach to the Jews. Again, backwards, Upside down, insanity. And do you know why Jesus is using the oppressing nation to speak to the Jewish people? Because Jesus is sharing that it's not just this punitive black and white lines of separating people, but he's using our hearts to discern our allegiance. You are not automatically in if you are Jewish. You are not automatically out if you are Roman. This isn't how the kingdom that I'm creating is being drawn up anymore. Those walls are coming down. Jesus is different. And it's almost as if this new and different reign that Jesus is bringing has nothing to do with our cultural differences or our nationality, nothing to do with our heritage, and it's got everything to do with what is going on inside us. And then we check out verse 22 of chapter 7. And then he, Jesus, told John the Baptist's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached to the poor. Uh, On this verse, J.J. Karnarajer, that's that's how he pronounces it. Um, uh, But he writes this, his gospel, having liberating power, Is meant for those who are socially, economically, politically in a humiliated position, and for those who are physically sick and suffering. Jesus is chasing humiliated people to build his kingdom. The good news is being preached to the poor. The good news has been preached to those on the outside. The good news has been preached to those who have lost loved ones. The good news has been preached to those whose bodies are failing them. The good news has been preached to the person who were are exiled and forced to live outside the city walls. The good news has been preached to the people that do not mean anything to the community that values influence and ability. Jesus is bringing something new. And the final thing I want to point out from this group of chapters is from chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. Uh, You might have a little title in your Bible that says, The True Family of Jesus. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, they want to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. And then Jesus saw his mother looking at him, and he changed his answer very quickly. <laughs> no, just joking. There is a book called Families in Ancient Israel, and it's a part of this bigger series on family religion, culture in the ancient world. And uh, this is how the authors describe the, the ancient family, uh, the family, union, family unit in ancient Israel. The Israelite family provided the primary locus, or like a space where things happen, for human existence for social interaction, for social rules, for moral value, and for religious belief arising from its corporate identity and solidarity. So in other words, in ancient Israel, in the Jewish culture, family gives you your footing to base your social interactions on. It gave you your footing for your role and your place in society. It gave you your footing for you to know how to believe and how to act. Even your reasons for existence were grounded in family. So basically, family is a big deal. Uh, Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, he said, you know, the strength of the family is like the strength of an army, and it lies in its loyalty to each other, or that you know, blood is thicker than water, family is everything, or whatever they say in the the Fast and Furious movies. I don't know. I've never watched them. I have, and I confess. Uh, But again... This idea of family being the highest thing, the biggest thing, Jesus is flipping it on its head. God's family doesn't come from just like biological fortune and luck. It doesn't come from marrying the right people. It doesn't come from being a certain nationality. The door through which we enter into God's family is simply this. Those who hear God's word and obey it. Those who hear God's word and obey it. You might be saying to yourself, Kyle, this is a great history lesson and a wonderful stroll through some chapters of Luke, but, oh, sorry, my time's up. Um, <laughs> but like, so what? Like, what actually what actually changes now that, now that we know these things? Like, what difference does it actually make? And unfortunately, the answer is everything. It changes everything if we know this to be true and we want to put it in our lives, because Our values and our priorities are constantly pulled in opposite directions. We're invited into this upside down kingdom. We're we're invited into this place that we are granted citizenship of. But time and time again, we find ourselves wandering back outside the walls of this place that we've been invited into as we slip back into the familiar way of doing life. And we start slowly shielding ourselves from God's reign and Jesus' reign in our heart. I fall back into that old way of thinking. Uh, I find myself getting frustrated with myself for a, like a rut of devotion or prayer. Or I get frustrated with the way I'm acting or the way I'm like, responding to my, my family or, or to work or to life's unexpected events. And then I get burnt out from trying to do all these things that I think I need to do in order to keep God happy. But then Jesus says, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And I remember that Jesus' kingdom extends further than my actions. It extends to the depths of my heart. And if my heart is not submitting to God's will, then my actions do not bring him glory, regardless of what they are. It doesn't really matter if I'm doing the right thing if if my heart is not in the right place. If God hasn't won control of my heart, then everything that comes after that is secondary. The normal way of control of a ruler it might be to care about the actions, to control the behavior. But Jesus came to win your heart and win your affection. Like imagine imagine sitting under the stress of a life that you cannot get in control of. Like sitting under the burden of not knowing all the right things that you need to do and then when you do know what you need to do, you just can't do all of them anyway. Imagine sitting under the burden of you know, yelling at your kids or fooling around and messing up your grades or messing up relationships because of bad patterns and choices. Imagine all that pressure sitting on you and then add to that the pressure of feeling like because of these things, all this wrong that you are doing or all the right that you are not doing, because of all these things, you are no longer loved and close to God. Imagine that pressure. Imagine the hurt that that does to a person believing that. And I have a feeling that a lot of us can relate to that pressure. But then you hear this message that it's not about behavior modification, but it is about heart transformation. And that God says that our heart comes under his reign. The presence of the Holy Spirit will work in us to redeem us and change our life. A kingdom that cares more about the desires of your heart. Imagine what that can do to the spirits of a person. Or growing up in a world that tells you that you need to take in order to win. Your kingdom needs to grow just like every other kingdom on earth needs to grow. And you grow by winning You need to control in order to succeed. You need to be bigger. You need to be better. You need to be stronger. And then Jesus comes with this message that real control and real success is learning to do good to those that hate you. To learn to be generous to those who are rude to you. To pray for the persecutors and not just the persecuted. That message changes everything. That message should make Christians stand out like sore thumbs because it is so backwards. Why do you think it like why do you think it makes the news when when like a runner stops mid-race to help one of the other runners to stand up who's fallen down? Because it is rare because we don't do that. We don't live that way. We don't value that. And yet they put it on the news and then everyone's like cool, that's awesome. I'm not going to do that though. Like why, why is it such a big deal when people do random acts of generosity and kindness that it makes the news because it is not what they value, but it's probably what they want? Like, why does it make the news when someone wins all this money and then they give it away to charity? Why do we marvel at stories about people letting other people get ahead of them, showing kindness or showing generosity? Because that is so different to what we are indoctrinated with. It is so different to this consumerism, to this success model that we're handed, to this popularity contest that we live in, to this this influential game that we're a part of. and It's just so different to all this stuff that we're used to. And Jesus is redefining what it means to win. Winning isn't getting the last word in an argument anymore. It's being the one who takes the first step towards reconciliation. Winning isn't coming, on, uh, coming out on top of a deal anymore. It's about having integrity in the transaction. Winning isn't only about caring about the good guys and making sure the good guys are looked after, but caring about every person who's created in the image of God. Winning isn't about making sure that you get yours. Winning is about making sure that the right thing gets done. You might not get ahead in this world, winning the way that Jesus wants us to win, but good, let's be different. At least you are following Jesus because Jesus changes everything. Uh, A few years ago, there was a big study done with a heap of students in in Melbourne and the three biggest areas for stress um, in a student's life were identity, purpose, and belonging. And Jesus replies My mother and my brother are all those who hear God's word and obey it. We are so stressed about performing by making sure that we fit in so that we belong. Trying so hard to find out who we really are. But the answer to all those things is here in those 15 words. You are given a place of belonging, a new identity, a new purpose, simply by hearing and obeying the word of God, which is revolutionary. A core truth that we can learn from this section is that Jesus is coming for your heart. He is chasing your desires. He is chasing your allegiance. And when he has that, he is going to change the way that you see the world. He's going to change what you value. He's going to change what you prioritize. Everything is going to shift. I don't know if everyone here has taken that step of bringing their heart to God, but today is the day to do so. Whether for the first time or whether for the hundredth time, give your heart over to God for Him to rule so that He can bring this upside-down kingdom mindset and implant it into you. You guys cool if I pray for you? Too bad. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just thank you for you. We just thank you for this crazy upside-down kingdom that we would not have thought of if we were in charge. We would not have created this God if we were in charge. We would not have brought Jesus down with this mission if we were in charge. We would have sought victory like we know victory to be in the world. We would, have thought, we would have fought for control and success and riches and comfort. But Lord, you have changed that. You have flipped it on its head and you came to serve. You came to seek. You came to love even when love was not shown to you. And so, Lord, I pray that this message that only you bring, no one else brings this but you, I pray that this message that you bring soaks into us. Lord, I pray that we would, you know, cut the strings on that balloon that's sort of blocking us from seeing you clearly. Lord, I just pray that we would know who you are, that we would invite you into our lives, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would live for you day to day in this upside-down kingdom, standing out like sore thumbs because we just value different things. Lord, speak through us in your name. Amen.